Human Vortex Training and Menachem Brody present the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, physiology, psychology, tech, and much more to help you get fitter, faster, and stronger in and out of your sport, giving you expert insights, talking with other leading experts. And now, your host, world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode number 101 of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. This week, we sat down and talked with Greg Choate about when to get more aggressive with your bike fit and when not to. And we cover a ton of other topics as they all are related to this. There is a ton of misinformation out there on a lot of good intentions and bad advice when it comes to bike fit. Uh, slam the stem. I remember I was coming up. I'm sure the kids these days are still saying that. Slam that stem. Well, in fact, uh, slamming the stem and getting more quote-unquote aggressive in your bike fit can actually do a disservice to you uh, and cause you to have worse control on the bike, especially descending, which can be very scary, as well as forcing you to work harder to go through those turns or sprint or climb. Now, all of these things are on-bike skills, and this is something that Greg and I actually get into. What you may not know about Greg is that he is actually uh, coming at bike fitting from a cyclist and a cycling coach and a strength and conditioning coach standpoint. Uh, He has a plethora of different degrees and certifications. Uh, Essentially, as he says, they just helped me become a better coach. That's what they all mean, uh, to paraphrase what he talks about today in, in our previous conversations with him uh, off air. And uh, I love that attitude. Greg and I are, are uh, friends. Uh, we met a number of years ago, I think 2012, 2011, uh, many, many years ago, on a land far, far away at the USA Cycling Coaching Summit Level 1. And uh, we've been following each other's careers over that time, and uh, we just get in touch, and it's, we pick up the phone. It's like uh, we never miss a beat. And we just uh, have really great conversations. And this time, we brought you along for the ride. And There are going to be some really interesting things, uh, very interesting topics that we cover here, including the difference between riding indoors and riding outdoors and why bike fit matters so much. And uh, Greg has a lot to say about this, uh, but this is really kind of like uh, the main talk, if you will, but we cover a ton of other different topics, uh, including the horrible bike fits that we see at the professional triathletes and TT races and why that is, um, as well as why you are on bike form uh, is going to be determined by your musculoskeletal function. So I just did a survey here about a week and a half ago for the HV training newsletter. And essentially, uh, I'm asking about what product Uh, would you like for strength training? What are you looking for? And one of the key phrases that came up is mobility and better function. Well, I just want to kind of give a little bit here in the intro, and we have a solo episode that's dedicated to this coming up, uh, but improved overall stability, strength and glutes, increased range of motion and activation, uh, injury prevention, maintain power over long distances on the bike, Uh, Let's see, uh, functional strength, more rotational movements, and increased core stability and power. Um, And there's a number of people who mentioned prehab, uh, tone and strength, lifelong health, mobility and core stability, stability and longevity, mobility and longevity. 
uh, increased strength, resiliency, and mobility. So mobility is a really big word. It's a key phrase that's been going around. Strength, mobility is important too. Uh, these are some of the actual feedbacks that were given in through the form. And if you would like to have an input, by the way, uh, for the upcoming uh, strength training products I'm going to put out, or you'd like for STIBS, uh, make sure you're heading on over to the Human Vortex Training website, humanvortextraining.com, and signing up for the free weekly newsletter. It's essentially a roundup of all the different content that's out there, uh, guest posts I've had for magazine or wherever it may be, as well as uh, the YouTube videos, this podcast, uh, and my thoughts as to what's going on in my life and what I'm experiencing as a coach. So uh, some weeks there are really deep insights and it'll be a, a nice little read like a blog post and other days it's, uh, hey, this is what's going on. And I plant a seed of asking a question, which always tend to be the best ones. A lot of people email back with those. Uh, but back on point here with the uh, mobility as we're going to talk about here with Greg today, uh, mobility and core stability, essentially these all come from uh, really great uh, places because a lot of people are, are talking about uh, how we need to be able to move to be better functioning. Well, the short answer to this is what Greg and I talk about today, and that is that your musculoskeletal function will dictate your on-bike form. Uh, and that means that there are going to be certain things because your musculoskeletal system, just your muscles and bones, are working on the bike and functioning in a certain way. There are certain restrictions that you should apply to how you're training. So functional training for cyclists, uh, I will put my flag on the ground here and say functional training for cyclists, for the most part, the vast majority of us, the 80%, the 80 percenters is going to be not deadlifting off the floor. You heard it here first, folks, the leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes saying don't deadlift off the floor. At least don't start there. I mean, we're going to take some time to get down there because for the vast majority of us, 80% uh, deadlifting off the floor is not going to be the way to go. And in fact, in my own training for the last couple of months, uh, I have not been deadlifting off the floor just now. Just now, uh, 19 and a half months after uh, my last deadlift off the floor, I will be doing a conventional deadlift at my coach's guidance. Uh, and we've been working with Romanian deadlifts, dumbbell deadlifts, single leg deadlifts, banded deadlifts, all these different ways to work on the hinge that will help me function better because of my knee surgery, uh, my broken fibula, uh, the other challenge that I have in my hip. So all of these things have kind of confounded the two. I haven't lifted a deadlift off the floor. My favorite lift, by the way, I freaking love Love deadlifts. You could find me in the gym deadlifting all day, squatting all day, bench press, eh, not so much, but it's important. And as you'll hear again with the, the conversation with Greg here, there's a lot of things that we want to look at to better understand what functional training is. A lot of us think functional as prehab to counteract the cycling position and prevent overuse injuries. Well, a lot of that comes just from good movement. It really does. And that's the fundamental five plus one push, pull, squat, hinge, press, and rotary stability. And these are things that I've talked about in the past here on the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete uh, podcast. Uh, and you can really learn quite a bit more just going back. You can listen to episode 82, Purposeful Movement, or episode 81 with Miguel Argoncillo, improving uh, your performance and movement by going deeper into a subject, not into a squat, deeper into the subject to get to know it better. These are the golden tickets. If we're talking about better function and prehab to counteract cycling position, it's getting better movements, learning to move your body, and that ties into bike fit. So one of the topics that Greg and I did not cover in the podcast, we, we just ran out of time, to be honest, 
was that uh, the bike fit is going to be instrumental in helping you be able to get the most out of your strength training. We touch on it a couple times, but we don't go super deep. Uh, so just keep in mind that as you're going through this, getting great movement patterns for your strength training is what's going to be the big kicker for you. So without much further ado, let's get into today's episode number 101 with Greg Choate on the bike fit and how to get the most out of it. Because, well, if you want to ride your bike fast, you need to know when to get more aggressive and when not to with your bike fit. And the answer will surprise you. Let's take it away to Greg. Greg, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Menachem. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me aboard. Of course. It's been far too long. I mean, we had spoken about doing a podcast, I think, uh, in the first year of this. Uh, but we're both busy professionals, and you've been uh, doing quite a bit the last two and a half years here in particular. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. I, I am. Uh, my name is Greg Choate. I'm based out of Las Vegas, Nevada in the United States. You can tell from my accent that I'm actually from Brooklyn um, <laughs> via way of New Zealand. Uh, been here in the U.S. about 20 years now, and I am a USA cycling coach. I am a strength and conditioning specialist, a functional movement level two instructor, uh, a hardcore kettlebell instructor. Pretty much I have way too many initials after my name, none of which really mean anything, but they have all been part of my learning journey as a movement uh, specialist working with rehabilitating humans' movements. Obviously, my specialty is in the cycling world only because I'm a cyclist, but I work with a lot of other athletes and have worked with athletes across sports from working at the top level of the UFC and mixed martial arts through to working with Olympic badminton, professional motocross, motor racing, cyclists, triathlon, running, tennis players, um, the list is quite extensive at this point, but for me, what I describe myself as working with movement, which is species specific, and I particularly work with humans. And you and I met, uh, what was it, 2012 or 2013 at the USA Cycling Coaching Level 1 course, I believe? Yeah, it seems like a very long time ago. Uh, it seems like we have known each other for a very long time. Uh, but like, I think with people who uh, you create relationships with, we seem to pick up just where we left off. So yeah. um, I'm excited that, uh, you know, we've both watched each other's careers shift and, uh, you know, our experience increase. And, and, you know, I think that's been an amazing journey. And I've certainly, you know, kept my eye on you and what you've been doing. And I've been uh, a, a listener, longtime listener, first time caller to the podcast. I appreciate that. And, you know, that's one of those things, like you said, when you meet the, the right people, uh, when we talk, it always just seems to be exactly what you said. Not only do we pick up where we left off, but we have very similar things on our radar, but also very different. But it, it, that understanding from one another is like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Tell me about that versus like, well, huh? Uh, so it's kind of like uh, finding that that balance between uh, individuals who have their own unique experiences uh, and the ability to be able to share that not only with one another, but also to find similarities and, and also weaknesses. I mean, we've had a number of conversations where uh, it's, well, have you tried this? Uh, and it's like, oh, well, that, yeah, actually, that's a great idea. So the openness of and flowing of ideas and experience to help better those that we're involved with. 
Yeah, I think it's always a danger. Like you don't want to surround yourself with people who think the same way that you do. Um, because then you don't actually challenge yourself and progress. So I think one of the great things about certainly the community of exercise and health professionals that we surround ourselves with, we're always there to be challenged. And I say a lot of the time, you know, I don't consider myself um, to know. I, I'm always a student, right? Um, <laughs> I don't think I know everything. I think I, I know a little bit about a, a small amount of stuff and I'm always looking to work with other professionals to learn more because there's that whole space of the, you know, the stuff that you know, you know, the stuff that you know, you don't know. And then that huge expanse of the stuff that you don't know, you don't know. And I think it's really important that pursuing that element of knowledge is, is sort of been my lifelong journey for sure. And that all seems to kind of culminate uh, where you've kind of gone the last, I guess it's been what, four years that you've really dug, dug your heels in uh, into bike fitting and in specific. Is that correct? Or was it a little bit earlier than that? Well, probably a little bit earlier than that. I think for me, you know, I've been bike fitting 22 years now. Uh, I think really dating back into the mid early 2000s, mid 2000s really when i started to look at motion capture mocap technology and an assessment and it was everything you know tends to be a bit of a a rabbit hole where you start to go down and and you realize once again the more you know the more you realize you don't know and that sort of drives your investigative process and so working with you know a lot of cyclists and triathletes in the amateur and the professional ranks that's evolved now and obviously over the last four so three to four years i would say the explosion of the indoor cycling market um and that's distinct from you know what we know as, as cyclists triathletes for indoor training which has been going on for a long time um, I know, you know, I was riding rollers when I was 11 years old in the garage and every now and then I'd fall off the rollers and dad would have to come out to the garage and pick me up off the floor and put me back on. Um, so, you know, indoor training per se has been around for, for a very long time, but this explosion of the indoor cycling market, which was, I think, an evolution from spinning and the spinning classes, which were traditional at gyms where I think now people have been using indoor cycles as a more of a, a fitness tool and quote unquote cross training. And, you know, I hate that term, but um, you know, so yeah, over the last sort of four years, we've sort of started to dive pretty deep into that as well. Um, and over the last, obviously the last 18 months, the, uh, the lockdown, the pandemic, the COVID, the Rona has driven that, um, to require even more investigation. So yeah, it's, it's certainly a journey. Um, and still, and I'm still a student. So, but learning all the time and increasing my knowledge, you know, thousands of fits and then assessments of lots of other human beings. And uh, like in the bike world, people know me for saying it's not about the bike. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's certainly been an interesting last few years for sure. 
And you, you mentioned in, in the introduction about yourself, about how you've worked with a plethora of athletes from a wide variety of sports. And I think that's one of the, the first differentiations that we need to make. And we talked about this a little bit in, in the beginning before we hit record here is there's a very big differentiation between an indoor cyclist for fitness and someone who's actively riding outside. We're not just talking about, yeah, you know, twice a year going onto the rails to trails or, you know, a, a day with the kids kind of thing, but actually going out and riding your bike as a serious hobbyist, even if you're not racing. Can we get into how important it is to differentiate that and why that is? Yeah, I think the, the, the uh, there's obviously a lot of similarities, like the way we pedal a bike. You know, there's a, a very specific way in which humans pedal a bike. The interesting thing about bicycles is that why bicycles have become so popular, and I'm not just talking about it as a sport, you know, bicycles, if we go back to our youth, or certainly, you know, most of our youths who have been in, in cycling, a bicycle represented freedom. And it was something you just did, right? It allowed you to explore your geographic environment to a greater extent because the bicycle is an amazing mechanism for converting your input to, to movement. And so the great thing about the bicycle in itself is very efficient. So we can actually stick a human on it in a not very efficient position and the bicycle still works. It's really interesting. It's working with triathletes. You can be in a horrible position on a bicycle and we see that just go to any triathlon and you'll see lots of horrible positions on bikes. And that's not just the amateurs. We see that in the professional ranks as well. If you were to have a horrible position swimming, you would drown. And that's a really interesting distinction to show just how amazing a bicycle is at, at, at taking you know, the energy that you're putting into it and converting that into forward motion. And so when we look at the difference between an indoor bicycle and you know, we can look at something from the spinning or nowadays in the, in the realm of the echelon bikes or the Kaiser bikes, the I-forms, the Bowflexes, uh, the Pelotons, um, there's a big difference. The way we pedal that bike is, very, is the same, should be the same as when we pedal a bicycle outside. But the big difference is there's no balance input into an indoor bicycle like there is into an outdoor bicycle. I know there's some certainly some technology now where you've got these bikes which rock from side to side. That's sort of become more of a distraction, I think, than anything else from, you know, to try and keep the, the participant involved, mentally involved. But yeah, the big difference being that on a bicycle, riding a bicycle outdoors, there's a balance component, riding an indoor bicycle um, there is no balance component. Well, on top of that, or I guess, no, let, let's, let me rephrase that. Alongside that, that completely changes the demands that are placed on the joints, on the systems of the body. I mean, when we look at it from the, the uh, Thomas Myers, you know, anatomy trains, the, the fascial system lines, at least for myself, when I was coaching the uh, indoor cycling for endurance athletes course uh, in Pittsburgh, I try to get people as neutral as possible on the spin bikes. Cause they want to, I want to copy my TT position and, and get down. <laughs> and it's like, and I made that mistake. Like I actually yeah, had to tra well, teach off the bike for three weeks. Cause I was an idiot. Right. And I was like, yeah, well let's try it for three weeks, everybody. And then, well, guess who has FAI and should know better. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, that's the, that is the, you know, the big thing is understanding that 
there is a sweet spot of peddling biomechanics. When you talk about outdoors and we talk about something like a, you know, trying to optimize the, the CDA, the aerodynamic drag of a human on a bicycle, um, you don't need to do that indoors. <laughs> there's, no, there's no wind to overcome. There's no drag to overcome on an indoor bicycle, understanding that when you are riding outside, the human makes up 80% of that equation. So that just goes to show, so you know, that's how much energy goes into overcoming that resistance, the wind resistance outside, but that doesn't have to be overcome indoors. So yeah, your position and your optimal, so out, outside we will bias towards a less biomechanically optimal or physiologically optimal position uh, in an effort to reduce the aerodynamics and it's a balancing equation and that balancing equation is not a static equation because that equation is relative to the duration of the event or the duration of the time you're going to spend, you know, in that position. And, you know, as an example, if you're riding the, the, the individual pursuit on the velodrome, the indoor cycling track, you know, you need to stay in that position for, you know, three and a quarter minutes. Um, if you're riding an Ironman, you know, you, you need to stay in that position for, you know, depending on where your capacity is as an athlete, somewhere from, you know, four to eight hours. So just being able to maintain those positions. And we could take that back to just a lot of the functional movement work that you and I do with, with clients is, you know, owning your deep squat or owning the hip hinge. Like how long can you sit in a position before you can't sit in that position anymore? Yeah, I, that's such a great point. And I actually just finished today filming the second uh, video to release in the uh, bonus content for the, the certification course, which by the time this is released, will will be closed again. Um, but I the second one is on the deadlift. Mm -hmm. And I mean, every, every opening it's different. So now, I don't know what it'll be next time when people get into it, but every opening, the bonus content is different. It's made fresh, whatever's going on. Uh, and the reason I mention that is the thoughts as to not deadlifting off the ground. Like I wouldn't say I'm anti because as we know, it, it always depends, right? Like <laughs> I, I just had someone today tell me that he's only doing toes to bar for his, his core work. And I was like, for you, that's, that's fantastic. You can do that, but you've got to add it in some internal oblique work, like basic side planks and bird dogs with great technique, because you're just pulling on. Anyhow, when we talk about the, the non-biomechanically advantaged position on, on the bike, a lot of people may be listening and saying, Craig, what are you talking about? The whole point of a bike fit is to make it biomechanically advantageous. And you just happen to be as aero as possible. But that's not the case. It's exactly what you're talking about. There's these positions of it uh, that are advantageous to us. How does that carry over to the strength side of things? Like, do you look at someone's fit on the bike and where you want to take them and say, you know what, you're not going to deadlift off the ground anymore. Or you know what, we're just going to do deadlifts with uh, the hex bar uh, off of blocks uh, at some point. On the because high handle. Yeah, Ex exactly. Like how, do, how do the listeners begin to, to wrap their heads around? Like, yeah, you should be doing strength training, but there are certain movements that you're going to want to adapt based on how you looked, look on the bike. Absolutely. So the, the big thing 
which I'll express onto a client regarding their position on the bike is your function is going to dictate your form. So we have to find where your function is. And that's why it's really important for me when I'm working in the clinic with people uh, in person bike fitting is, is that the assessment process of seeing where your function lies is vitally important because every time your function will dictate your form your function will dictate what position we can put you into there's no you know no point in trying to uh, achieve a aerodynamic position or even not even the aerodynamic position like we look at in the time trial position the, the triathlon position but just somebody being able to ride in the drops of their road bike or even upright on a mountain bike if you don't have the function to achieve a certain position you, you might be able to maintain it for like, I, I can put you in an incredibly aerodynamic position and, and 500 meters down the road, you'll have to come out of it because you just can't sustain it. So we're trying to find that functional sweet spot all the time. And again, it goes back to the duration of your event. It's almost like, you know, when you're talking about, I always say to people, you know, there's three parameters, good, fast, and cheap, pick any two, because you know, we have to create a, a sweet spot there of, you know, if, it, if it's going to be fast, it's probably not going to be cheap and it's, you know, it's very seldom going to be good. If it's going to be good, um, you're not going to get it fast <laughs> and it's probably not going to be cheap. But Greg, so, there's an app that I can use to, to <laughs> tell me what yeah, which is only It's only $2.99 on the app store. <laughs> right. And, and, and that sort of comes into that, you know, there's a lot of, Certainly, and and it's the same. Well, you know, going back to what you said, it's it's that thing in fitness. Um, you know, you don't see any six foot tall powerlifters at the Olympics because you know their function doesn't allow them to break the bar off the ground, which is the same height for somebody who's six foot as it is for someone who's five foot. And the guy who's six foot actually has to move the bar over a greater distance, therefore do more work than somebody who's shorter. So when we talk about morphotypes, you know, in different sports, but morphotypes work in function as well. It's why, like you do, you know this, you work with, with basketball players. The, the, just their physical leg length dictates that there's certain exercises which they can't do in the same way as somebody who's like a gymnast. So it, it, it really, you know, when we talk about, yeah, you there are strength exercises like you know we're probably in the same camp with this i very seldom have people lifting off the ground we need to bring the bar up to meet your range of function because the highest possibility of injury is at the start of the movement or the end of the movement and that's where the torque is at its greatest and when we have large amounts of torque that increases the possibility of injury yeah. And that, that's something I've had conversations via email with, uh, I think I counted this morning, four people, uh, over the last year and a half, a little bit longer, uh, right mm -hmm. before the pandemic. So let's say January, February of 2020, uh, who in their emails kind of mentioned they were either having back pain or some of them sent me like video clips. Um, another one, uh, wound up working with me and is working with me one-on-one. -on -one. 
And each one of them, I just said, look, deadlifting off the floor is, shouldn't be in your, your, your game here because, you know, and, and two of them were actually following a specific approach that I, I, I won't mention because I'm not a big fan of it. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is after if you really want to know. But uh, it was very clear from the descriptions of the pain, the videos, like, yo, dude, you either have an L3, L4 or an L2, L3, which was really odd, by the way, an L2, L3 hinge for the deadlift. Mm. Um, but it turned out there was something else going on. And all four of them have disc injuries uh, within right. the 18 months. And, you know, two of them emailed me and said, you know, you, you know, how did you see that? I'm like, it, it's, it's not magic. It's common sense when you understand the tissues, the <laughs> postures, the positions, and the stresses. If you just told me you're having back pain, you're deadlifting off the floor, and you just slammed your stem, like it doesn't, you know, one plus one doesn't right. equal two. It equals 16 in that case, because there's right. all these other effects that come down as a, it's not a trickle effect. It's a, the damn broke. Exponential, kind of exponential loading. That's the physics equation, right? The people ask me about, you know, how do I get such a good understanding of this? And, and I'm an anatomy geek. I love anatomy and I, I study anatomy <laughs> in my spare time, let's call it. Um, but if you understand anatomy and understand physics, you can pretty much figure this out because physics, gravity acts on us all in the same way. And when we start to look at levers and exponential increasing of load as the lever length increases, and then looking at the weak spot, the weak points, which are typically joints, which are, you know, have different function, um, you can figure it out. I mean, if you look at somebody like, someone touching your toes is a great example you can touch your toes via very different mechanisms you can touch your toes with a hip hinge you can touch your toes with a very stiff lumbar spine and massive thoracic flexion you can touch your toes with you know uh laxity in the shoulder just the ability to internally rotate your shoulder will create more reach so there's lots of different ways you can do it but there's very few optimal, you know, there's an optimal way. And I think that's where I come back to my statement about how I look at things is very species specific. We all, you know, in our species, we have the same number of bones, same number of muscles. They have origin insertion. Our base functionality is very, very similar. Everybody thinks they're a snowflake and they are at some level, but there are some base levels of functionality. And we bring it back to like the basis of medicine is, you know, when you go into the doctor, everybody has their weight taken, their height taken and a blood pressure test. You know, does a blood pressure test really tell you anything? No, but it's a, it puts you into a risk category and gives a baseline. And we all know that from the research, 120 over 80 is the, is the baseline blood pressure test, which they say is quote unquote normal. I have, you know, I, I, I run about, you know, 118 over 78. And every time I go into the doctor, they say, wow, you have amazing blood pressure. And I'm like, no, I have textbook blood pressure. It's just you're so used to seeing bad that you think where I am is something special. I, I so believe we've lost, we've lost scope of where the baselines are. And that's where I think assessment is so vital yeah. mm -hmm. that we need a, an exercise of all types, right? Whether it be lifting a weight or, or running or bicycling, just because you can do it doesn't mean you're doing it right. Exactly. That was actually the first video for the course <laughs> for the, for the uh, bonus content is just because you can do a squat doesn't mean you're doing it right. But you just right. hit on something that's so prevalent. And yet 
there's all these people and, and it's a little bit of a, a, a stone in my shoe these days that I'm, I'm evidence-based in my coaching practice. I'm evidence-influenced. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Because, and then I asked them like, oh, actually I read that article as well. I, and th- this was literally a conversation two weeks ago. I read that article as well. Did you see who it, who it uh, didn't work for at all? Uh, what do you mean? It, 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 the, the P was 0.037, something like that. I don't know. I was like, yeah, but there were like seven people out of the 63 that it really didn't work for and had to drop out because they had pain and discomfort. Did you see that mm-hmm. part? Uh, like you've got to understand how doc, uh, how doctors think. Oh, that's a great book. What is that? Atul Gawande, I think. No, no, his was better. Uh, but those two books, How Doctors Think and, and uh, Better, are a great insight to what you just said. No, we're textbook, but how did we get to those numbers, right? What was the right. sample size? What was the lifestyle at that time? Those were developed, what, 1930s, 1940s, when people were still walking a lot of places as opposed to sitting in front of the television? Yeah, they sat right. in front of the radio, but very different. Yeah, it, and it, it is the, I think that's where, I, I, I'm always having, you know, when I'm working with people, I'm like, you know, once I have a process where I, I actually do my physical assessment and movement-based assessments before I even talk to the client about what it is that they've come in to see me about, because I don't want what they're going to tell me to influence what I think I might be seeing. So I'll go through all my assessment stuff first. And, and, you know, invariably when a client comes in, they're like, Oh, I want to tell you why I'm here. I'm like, okay, let's just save that up. And I'm going to ask you those questions, but let me just go through my process first. And so really interestingly, when we've gone through that process and I'm like, okay, let's talk about you now and, and what your experiences are and what your injury history is and what are the other exercises you're doing and, and, you know, do you do cross training and what type of, they do, oh, I do strength work. I'm like, oh, okay. What type of, what is strength work for you? And I do core. Okay. Explain what core is for you because these people's um, understanding of those terms and concepts are, you know, really varying. And what is exercise for one person is not exercise for another. And, and that's not a good or bad thing. It's just the way, you know, we, uh, just the way it it occurs for people in their lifestyle. So it's one of my you know favorite jokes is when people tell me they do CrossFit and I'm like, I always ask what's CrossFit. And they're like, you know, CrossFit. I'm like, no, what is it? And they're like, well, we do like exercises. I'm like, well, what type of exercises? And they're like, well, we do like Olympic lifts and we throw medicine balls and we jump rope and we run. I'm like, oh, we just used to call that exercise. (laughs) And, and, you know, because it's different for different people. And that's where Mm -hmm. I think in the models, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not ragging on CrossFit, but that's where the one size fits all and exercise does not work. You know, you're, you, we need to, that the exercise, the workout of the day does not work, you know, because everybody's function is different. If I have everybody doing the same exercise and it's, you know, six cleans followed by this, followed by that, I can tell you there's going to be a very high percentage of those people who those exercises are going to be more detrimental to them than beneficial. 
Oh yeah. I, I I've seen that with my own eyes. I coached CrossFit here for five years and the, I think part of it, and this would be a good pivot into the bike fitting side of things. Uh, Cause you mentioned, and I love the fact you mentioned how many bad fits there are in pro triathlon. I just stopped paying attention. I mean, I'm paying attention, but I stopped <laughs> commentating on it. Uh, the number of people who have this preconceived notion of what they need to look like on the bike. Yes. Like initially when I, I emailed you or, or Facebook messaged you about this was like, let's talk about, you know, picking your brain about when to get more aggressive and when to stay with your bike fit in race season or high ride season, because right. all of these people have, and myself included very much. So um, thankfully I have great people like yourself who are there to kind of smack me upside the head be like, really? Yeah, yeah, really? Do you need to do that? You're riding pain-free. You couldn't ride seven years ago and now right. you can ride pain-free, but you want to get more aggressive. Tell me how that's right. going to go. <laughs> I, I can tell you, I can tell you the secret to that. Just bend your elbows a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. Well, let, let's start right there. Is that <laughs> how simple is it for us to actually get more aggressive on the bike and to allow, well, no, let's even go before that. How do we get in or how do we know we're having a, or we have a good bike fit for us? What are the, the three or four things that we should notice as riders or triathletes that are big tip-offs to like, hey, you got this pretty darn good here? Uh, the absence of pain would be one. <laughs> it shouldn't hurt. Um, so, you know, and that's, and, and like, you know, pain is a yes, no discussion. It, it either hurts or it doesn't. And it's like, oh, it doesn't hurt until I get to the 60 mile mark. Well, yeah, then it still hurts, right? Something's not right. Um, yeah, that's a bit of a flippant comment. But uh, the, the interesting things is when we look at bike fit, um, the, the, I think the major element of bike fit that is overlooked is the, what I call a safety aspect. In your position on your bike, you should have full control over the bicycle. You should never feel like the, the bicycle has control over you. I'm very well known for saying, we talk about riding bicycles, but we also ride bulls and horses. And those two animals are in charge. The bicycle should not be in charge. You should be driving a bicycle in the same way you drive a motor vehicle, where you are fully in charge. You control when the acceleration happens, you control when you turn the, turn the wheel. For a lot of people, you know, on bicycles that doesn't happen you you hear it over and over again you go out in a group ride and it's like oh i don't like to go down hills fast because my front wheel wobbles well i can pretty much tell you that's not a function of the bicycle that's you and how you're interacting with the bicycle you know uh people who can't apex corners properly people who i don't ride in the drops very much because you know i, I don't feel comfortable or i don't feel like i'm in control of the bike okay well then that's a bike fit problem and, and the bike fit pro, it's a bike fit problem probably driven, could be driven by your functionality, could be driven by a bad position on the bike. So those are the, the real elements I'm always looking for. You should feel like you're balanced and in control of the bicycle at all times. And your position should be in line with the event that you're doing. Uh, obviously, if you're doing Ironman, you're 180 kilometers on the bike. You know, it's important that you're comfortable. You don't want to ride... 140 kilometers in the aero bars and they have to spend 40 kilometers out of the aero bars. That probably means your bike fit is not right. You should be able to stay in that position all the time because that position is actually, if we, if it's set up correctly, quite a relaxed position to be in the bike, you know, because we're bearing, 
weight through the humerus, the, the bone in the upper arm, you, you, the, the shoulder girdle is supporting a lot of that torso weight. Um, so there's lots of issues with there. You know, if you're getting neck pain on the bike, I can guarantee your position's too low because you're going to cervical extension. You're extending your neck too much, trying to look down the road. So, you know, that's the balancing act between your function dictating your form. Um, but, you know, and you want to be efficient. You want to feel like your position on the bike allows you to be in control of the, of the pedals and the, and the evenness of the distribution of power from one pedal to the other, um, you know, that should, that, that, that should be very smooth. The smoother the pedal stroke, the better. It's interestingly, I was recently talking with a, another colleague of ours, Colby Pierce, about pedaling mechanics and who has the smoothest pedaling mechanics in cycling. And, you know, we would traditionally consider that like the guys on the track who ride on the velodrome have, you know, a very smooth pedaling mechanic because they're a fixed gear and they pedal at very high cadence, they go at very high speed. Well, they actually, when it turns out, when you look at the research and analysis of, of torque, how we create power on the bike, it's actually mountain bikers who have the smoothest pedal stroke because on a mountain bike, when you have a smooth pedal stroke, you're able to keep even force through the back wheel and that way the back wheel doesn't slip. So That's on an really uneven terrain. So, you know, we talk about something like, you know, cyclists in flat areas like here in the US and Florida, you know, you don't have to have a very good pedal stroke in Florida to be fast because everything's flat, <laughs> you know, in terrain, which uh, on, on cycling on terrain, which is always changing, you need to have a much smoother pedal stroke. For mountain bikers, you need to have a very smooth pedal stroke because their terrain and the way they have to produce force into the back wheel is always varying. I'm not That's sure whether that answered your question or whether I just went off on a tangent. No, I think it does. And that, that, that surprised me at first, but then when I started thinking about it, I'm like, duh, that makes a ton of sense. Those are the right. athletes who have great control. One of the guys I'm coaching out of uh, Harrisburg, uh, we've been doing a lot of strength training. It's been about a year and a half and he's hitting PRs from 2013 and, and well, hitting PRs that he hasn't hit since 2013. And he's like, it was easy. I still had more in the tank. I just, I didn't know it was that good, but exactly what you said he has more control over the back wheel and he's able to dictate where he's going he's like i don't right. know what i'm doing but i haven't practiced my skills that much but i feel so good well also i think with cycling you know when you talk to any cyclist we we have and, and you've heard me say this before that the public perception of fitness is a well-developed cardiovascular system and strong muscles and that's the equivalent of building a huge engine and putting it on a car where the chassis is poorly aligned, the suspension is shot, and we have uneven tire pressure on the four tires. It's great to a point if you're going in a straight line, and even then you have to work to keep it in a straight line. But as soon as you start to go around corners or have to accelerate and decelerate, you run into problems. So looking at the broader description of what physical fitness is, it's about you know, functionality, is, there should be baselines and functionality which we need to you know hit to be considered fit and and looking at the crossfit games the you know quote unquote the fittest man and woman in the world well i don't not, not really that's a crossfit is actually a sport and so like in all sports you take shortcuts to get, get the task done to be the best performer in the event that's not a function of you know, not what I would call is, is pure fitness. 
And that's actually one of the things that I've been really uh, honing in on my, my own practice. The last year, since I haven't seen people that much, I've moved away from a formal assessment uh, unless it's very much so called for, like obviously the back pain patients, and I'll bring that back around, but there's a, a very formal assessment, but it starts when I see them. But a lot of the basketball players are coming back now, you know, their seasons are ending, the, the playoffs are finishing here. I just had one in today. And specifically with him, it was the, the, the verbiage was we were, we were going through side planks and we were changing the variation to make it more challenging for the glute meat and adductor and getting him a hip hinge. He has, he has uh, mm-hmm. something he's working through. And he put his hand overhead. And I said, you know, three weeks ago, we were okay with that, but now we're not. Because now you're being an athlete and you're figuring out a shortcut in order to keep tension in your body. And that's not what we're here for. We're here to develop you for next year and to get rid of the issue you Mm -hmm. got right now. So I want you to put your hand back on your hip and hold it there. And he gave me this look like you're kidding, right? I'm like, no, what we need is for you to be able to to struggle. And it was, he went from being able to knock out like 15, 20 seconds he was barely able to keep five seconds with great technique as soon as we took that away yet. That's a high, high threshold compensation. Exactly. Yet cyclists don't seem to make that connection between, well, back pain is normal. The number of guys, Greg, that I've had uh, on the phone for the better back and hips program. And we're doing an interview and I just go through one of them actually applied for the, the bigger blueprint program, the, the regular one. Right. So it's like in-depth coaching and, mm-hmm. He just mentioned like, yeah, you know, I just asked, you know, oh, how old are your kids? Oh, they're like three, uh, uh, one and a half, three and, and five or something. I was like, oh, how is it playing with them? And he's like, you know, now that you mention it, every time I get down on the floor a certain way to play with my youngest, uh, I have a, a sharp pain and I can't get up off the floor. <laughs> but he, th- then I said, okay, well, we need to talk about a different program because this is that, that sharp pain is very serious. He's like, no, no, it's normal. You know, all the, all the guys I ride with have some type of back pain. How did we how do we get to that when your first thing of, of how do we know we have a good fit is your pain free. So hip and back pain seem to be accepted in the cycling world. I was like, yeah, that's normal. When you get to a certain age or certain mileage. Yeah, that's okay. How do we, how do we educate ourselves and our athletes to like, yo dude, that is totally not okay. We need to have a very different conversation about what your training is. Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting, more of a psychological discussion than anything else, because cycling in itself is a really interesting sport in that, you know, we value the people who can go the fastest. Um, so, you know, <laughs> cycling, I'm, I'm a, I love cycling, right? Cycling has been a lot of my life. Um, I would not want it taken away, but it's a very low skill and not that there's no skill involved in cycling, but it's a very low skill sport. Um, there's no real, there's very small, very little, no, I'm saying there's not any, but there's very small technical components to cycling. So, because, you know, you can look at, you know, we've just had, you know, Criterium de Dauphiné, we've just had the Giro finish, we are in Tour de Suisse right now. And there's lots of professionals operating at their highest ranks, which look terrible on their bike. You know, they look like a monkey humping a football when they're going fast, but they go fast. If you look at a sport like figure skating or, you know, gymnastics, none of the top performers look bad, look ugly. You just, you know, that's just because it has a very high technical component. Cycling doesn't have that component. Running, you know, you very seldom do you look at a high level runner and they look like they're 
inefficient or look like there's an energy leak. It's just a great example that in cycling, you can have all these energy leaks and we can see them, you know, seeing a, a cyclist rock from side to side and that's just a wasted energy. You don't see that in a high level runner. The, the best runners in the world, they all look the same, right? Whether they're Craig Mottram from Australia, who is, you know, overly tall and running against, you know, Northern African runners or, or Usain Bolt or whatever, it looks like poetry in motion. You know, it looks fluid, but cycling is a little bit unique. And we don't see that how we, you know, how we the, the back to my original comment, the bicycle is a great tool for converting our energy into forward motion. So pain is not normal. And I think we have to get past that. You know, the number of people I have come into the clinic and it's like, yeah, everything's good, but the seat hurts, but it's okay. You know, it's meant to hurt, right? I'm like, no, nah, not really. There, yeah, sure. There's a point where you know, you've got pressure. If you've got a, a, a cyclist who doesn't have a lot of, you know, fat on them and, and you've got pressure on the, you know, on the sit bones or in the pubic ramus, uh, over after seven hours, yeah, a lot of that tissue is going to have compressed and you are going to have some sort of level of discomfort, but it's not meant to hurt. Again, most cyclists don't, you know, most cyclists are like, yeah, it hurts after the first 30 minutes. I'm like, yeah, well, then we have a big problem. And that ties into this mentality. I mean, I, I love the memes. I love them. I, I really do with the passion of soccer players versus cyclists, right? Totally. Like, and then, uh, oh, what's uh, the Illuminati? The, the Illuminati? Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all these rules, unspoken rules, or now they've become kind of memes of, you know, how hard cyclists are. Is that part of our problem that we've just come to be like, it's a badge of honor, you know, HTFU and, and triathlon instead for cyclists, like back pain, knee pain, any type of pain you have, as long as you're going fast on the bike for whatever group you're riding with, it's okay. Yeah. I think it has been a, become a badge of honor. And it's a problem. You know, when people say, oh yeah, I just pop a couple of vitamin I and I'm good to go, you know? Um, or I'm like, that's not normal. And there's a downside to that sort of stuff. Uh, but yeah, I don't know how we, that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, it has been coming badge of honor. There's, but there's a big, yeah, you know, cycling. When you look at professional cycling and there's a huge history behind that cycling are hard men. There's no question about it. There's just like, it's brutal. You go ride, you know, at the, the, at the professional ranks, as is, as is our football players, as are, you know, I've worked in the UFC, mixed martial artists, man. That's a tough way to earn a living. I'm going to, you know, it's, but when you get inside their environment, that they're like, yeah, um, you know, I, I, I cut weight to make, I cut weight to make money and I fight for fun. That's their motto. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's a different mentality. But cyclists, uh, yeah, the professional ranks, there's something you've got to be a little bit hard. I always, you know, someone said to me many years ago, you know, made some comment at a party, like, why is it that all you cyclists take drugs? And I'm like, because it's really, really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only way you could do it. You know, now it's a different, I think it's a different, that's, we're going on to a different discussion there, but I think it's a different, you know, playing field now as we've seen the shift from, older cyclists performing incredibly because they were using PEDs to younger cyclists dominating because they have the ability to recover. 
And I think that's where, you know, cycling was the, the PEDs were helping you recover. And now, you know, and then there was no substitute for thousands of miles in your legs. Now these younger kids are coming through and they just have this ability to recover. And that's really what makes the difference. You know, your ability to recover and go out and train again the next day or go out and race again the next day. I mean, just last week and in, in the uh, Criterion de Dauphiné, the, the um, Ukrainian kid who wins back-to-back mountain stages of arguably two of the hardest stages in pro cycling for this season, and he won them back-to-back. Want to learn more? Check out humanvortextraining.com for more on this topic from Coach Brody and today's guest. Well, that, that brings up a really interesting uh, point, and I think there's a trend here that we're seeing across a lot of sports, and that is uh, youth. You know, watching Drive to Survive, you mentioned the engine, the first, you know, the engine with the poor adjusted uh, uh, handling and the the first thing that came to mind was Racing Point or, or Williams from uh, two years ago from watching uh, the Formula One Drive to Survive. But, right. you know, the trend is younger. And, you know, a couple people have asked me why I think that is. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I just say we're getting athletes who have been treated like adults from a very young age. We have a select few who are making it through because they are genetically gifted or they have the right people around them who are pulling the plug a little bit well, not pulling the plug, they're dialing it down a little bit earlier so that they can actually recover enough. And then they make that leap to the next level. How long are their careers going to be? Don't know. But a lot of it has to do with that recovery. That's exactly what the the PEDs were. But, you know, all cyclists use drugs, right? You know, there was (laughs) seriously coffee and alcohol. I was just watching the AIC conversations with Guy Spear, uh, you know, coming from the the investing background. And, uh, he talks about caffeine and the antidepressant properties in it, uh, the pain reduction and the focus. And I'm sitting there watching this for investing and just learning from one of the best who's doing it right now. And I'm like, man, he just smacked me upside the head because that's why so many cyclists are addicted, quote unquote, to coffee. We mm-hmm. have mental challenges. I mean, we've had Dr. Lisa Lewis on here, I think three times now. And there's a reason for that uh, because the mental side is really the next or the final frontier, as I see it, where we start to understand how much we punish ourselves, why we're those uh, hard men and women. But on the opposite side of things, uh, as you just mentioned, these younger athletes are coming in and winning these really hard races. But we also see at the same time, a lot of these racers who came in younger at this age are facing mental and physical burnout. Tom Dumoulin took what a year off and is coming back mm, and we'll see yeah. how long that goes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting that cycling, you know, at the professional level, let's, you know, which is not a good place to benchmark ourselves because those people are freaks, but cycling at the professional level is chess at 30 miles an hour. You know, cycling for the rest of us is, is, is chess at, you know, it's still chess, at chess at, at 24 miles an hour you know <laughs> if you it's, know how to play it yeah well it's that's what i mean it's like you know you, you everybody the guys that i ride with they're like how do you know how to be in the right place at just the right time and i'm like yeah it's playing chess dude it's it's not that i'm super strong i'm just old and crafty well you paid you know, attention right? to how the sport is actually to be done i mean trevor connor right. mentioned that 
where these guys came up to him after a race, like, why were you, why are you still working? And did he's like, I'm working for my teammate. What are you talking about? And these are guys who watch the Tour de France and Giro and understand this, but don't execute in their own sport. Right. 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 Yeah. Is it's that, a, I mean, I definitely think now we're seeing in this realm that, that the ability to recover, you know, I mean, we could go down that to a whole nother discussion about the professional cycling position and I'll, I'll just come straight out and say it, you know, don't, don't try and copy a professional's position. You're not, you, you're man. not professional. That's, that's um, where I was going with this. <laughs> don't, don't try and train, don't try and train like a professional professional you're not a professional the way i'll train somebody to get to the professional ranks in their sport versus the way i train them when they are in the professional ranks of their sport are two completely different schemes and yet that's completely like, lost know, on people yeah it, and it's because i think you know we just we don't you don't see what goes on you know it's one it's it's all you see is the end result and, and again, when you're talking about sport and competition, we will compensate heavily during the competition to get the task done. And that is not the way you should train. You know, one of the greatest, I, I, I worked in a physical therapy center once and uh, they were doing, uh, you know, they had a, they worked a lot with baseball players. And they had a they had a, a, a rubber mallet with a with a weight strapped on the end of the rubber mallet to you know to simulate you know more force <laughs> in the rotation of the angle. I'm like, dude, just just do the math on what happened when you when you literally duct tape that one pound weight onto the end of a rubber mallet and how much it increased the forces on on the forearm. Like you know, you just don't. That's just you know, you don't look at the sport, you know, and, and, and look at the demands of the sport and try and design that in training. Because there's a great example of, you know, football, what are the designs of the sport? In football, you've got to be good at being tackled, right? So for training, we're just going to sit you out in the middle of the field and I'm going to have guys run at you and just pile into you as hard as they can. Cause that'll get you really good at taking tackles that's just a, a stupid it's just stupidity when you look at it like that well I, I think what it sounds like is something that that it sounds like what you're saying and also you know i've i've said a couple of times here on the podcast and um who was it hunter allen also said uh is that if we can understand that cycling is really a trickle up effect as opposed to trickle down, like power meters really took hold for people like you and me and the listeners, like mm -hmm. quote unquote average cyclists or serious hobbyists, and yep. then worked their way up to the professionals. It's not like Formula One affecting the cars that we're driving every day. Correct. Paddle shifting. Well, How so there's the interesting thing. Let's say that if we look at Formula One, NASCAR, safety features, all those sort of things, right? ABS, braking, suspension, that filter down into our everyday cars has been beneficial. In, in cycling, it's, it's actually been detrimental because you see these people, oh, okay, I want to ride the latest SL7 tarmac because, you know, that's what the fast guys in the pro, pro peloton rides. Again, understand that, that that bike was designed around those professionals. It wasn't designed for you and me. 
and the level of functionality required to be positioned correctly on that bike is a professional level of functionality, not a weekend warrior or, or you know, enthusiastic amateur level of functionality, especially not, you know, given that that bike, if you look at the S-Works tricked out axis, you know, Rovell carbon wheeled version is going to cost you $12,000. The guy who's got $12,000 to spend on that is a 40 year old merchant banker or doctor or dentist or something. And I can guarantee you, he does not have the functionality to be able to be positioned correctly on that bike. Well, let's dig into that for a second, because that, that's something that I think we're starting to see where the younger riders are now of the generation that have had some strength training that's better uh, right. I've also seen a number of YouTube videos uh, where these professional riders are working with who are supposed to be professional strength coaches or trainers. <laughs> You're laughing because so you, you know I'm going me with the this. stuff we see Nino Scherter and Kate Courtney doing on YouTube videos. <laughs> I shouldn't be having all my people do that. Yeah, I, I saw one, Greg. So, oh this guy goodness. had a professional cyclist, a, a world pro tour rider. Mm hmm on the low bars on a hex bar, cueing him to mimic his riding position on the bike in order to do a deadlift. Right, right. Yeah, I did believe, believe me. It's just, just again, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. But Greg, the guy said, I'm just, I want him to copy his riding position so that his, uh, his posterior chain is strong, just like it needs to be on the bike. <laughs> Yeah. Well, here's a, there's a great analogy. Okay. If I'm going to get you to, if I want to teach you to drive your car really, really fast and in a straight line, I don't set you up in a lane with the, the freeway barriers pulled right up against the lane markers. Right. The good thing is if you're going really, really fast and you lose control of the car, you're just going to bounce off the concrete all the way down and do a whole lot of body work. But, you know, the, 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 how we set you up is with a large margin of error on each side so that if you make a mistake, that mistake doesn't cost you. And that's sort of, you know, bike fitting, strength training and whatever. You never put people, that's why we don't, you know, if it was all about strength, we'd be one RMing everybody to, to get them to, you know, post their PR. So how do we then take this knowledge and, and better understand like, okay, Greg, you make a lot of sense. We've been, we've gone down a couple rabbit holes a little bit, but I'm with you. You know, you're talking about the, the, the balance and control at all times. Yeah. I do feel that wheel moving and that does make sense. And someone else mentioned it's about bike fit. Uh, I'm not comfortable on relaxed on the bike after the first hour. How do the listeners out there, what, what are the two or three things if they're, let's say they're on Pelotons right now. What are the things that those who have gotten into cycling because of Peloton and who want to go outside, what do they need to know? And second, what do those of us who ride outside need to know as far as bike fitting? I, I would say bike rider positioning is about balance. We can all perform um, an action in an unbalanced position, but we will perform it more efficiently and be able to perform it for a much longer time when we're in a balanced position. So I think part of it on a bike is finding your balance position on a bike. And usually that has to do with where your center of mass is. And as we know, our center of mass is somewhere down in the lumbar spine. Um, so that means our position on our bike is going to look very similar to a hitch, hip hinged mechanic. 
So we don't ever want to operate at the end of range of our functionality. So you don't want to be knocking up against the, the, the rubber bumper stop at the end of the range all the time. You want to be operating with a margin of error. Um, I don't want to be, you know, if it's a three lane highway and there's nobody else on it, I don't want to be driving down the left-hand lane or the right-hand lane. I want to be driving down the middle lane so that if, you know, I need to swerve and move around a little bit, I'm not going to hit the barrier or go off the road. So people finding their balance point on the bike is critical. Um, and, you know, you want to get your hips back in a position where you can actually drive force down through the pedals efficiently, smoothly from one side to the other. And you want to have no more weight on your hands in the hoods position or in the TT position than it takes you to control the bike. You should never feel like you're having to hold yourself up. You should never feel like you have a high, what we would refer to as a high postural implication. Um, because when we do that, it affects our breathing and I'd rather have breathing than anything else. You know, breathing is important. Um, but balance is, I think, the critical aspects which most people overlook uh, as far as, you know, position themselves on a bicycle. So whether you're on an indoor bicycle or an outdoor bicycle, we want to have, have our hips displaced enough so that we can take advantage of the big bone in our upper leg, the femur, to be able to create force to drive the pedal down. Cycling is not a triple extension sport like running is, you know, we don't extend our hip. We don't extend our knee in cycling and they stay in a flex position. And also you don't want to have any more weight on your hands than it takes you to hold on to the handlebars. If you use that as your rules of thumb, you're probably going to have a pretty good position on your bike. And especially for the outdoor cyclists, you want to be able to, that wants to be the case in the drops as well. You know, you paid for the drops, you may as well use them. And then I would say 80% of the people who come to see me say, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't ride in the drops. It's, it's not very comfortable. Well, you know, as you know, uh, Menachem, riding in the drops is the, one of the safest places you can be. There's a reason the drops were created. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, those would sort of be my, my main points for sure. The riding in the drops is the one that I've also seen. I mean, I, I haven't done that many bike fits. I think I, I, I stopped my last one was like 100, 125, 127. There, there's enough to like understand. But the number one problem for most people wasn't back pain, wasn't knee pain, wasn't foot. It was not, they didn't see it as a problem. Like you said, right. you can't ride in the drops. Like, can you bring the handlebars back so I can get into that third position? What? Why? Yeah. So, yeah, and it's, but the, the big thing is it comes back to human movement. When one thing moves, everything moves. So that's where positioning somebody on a bicycle is a, is a real balancing act, excuse the pun, that, you know, there's so many different factors come into it. Um, you know, we want to be in a position where we use the femur as the lever to its greatest advantage. We want, but, and we need to be able to have the center of mass positioned on the bike um, so the bike is balanced, you know, bicycles want, if you take a bike to the top of a hill by itself and push it down the hill by without a rider on it, it actually wants to go in a straight line. It's our user interface, our user interaction with the bike, which changes that. So, you know, the gyroscopic aspect of a bicycle and its wheels is pretty powerful, but you want to get your hips back to a point where you're balanced on the bike, but then your hip function or your hip hinge and the mass of your torso will dictate where your handlebars need to fall for you to put your hands in them and in the most efficient manner.
And once again, if you've bought an SL7 Tarmac or a, a Pro Tour style bike, I, I don't like to use the big S word all the time, but that's sort of the benchmark. Um, I can guarantee you're going to have trouble getting on that bike because that bike was not designed for you or your level of functionality. It was designed for a professional bike rider like Peter Sagan, like, you know, Richie Port, like Egan Bernal. Those bikes are designed around those guys. They give all the inputs. Like, you know, I, I guarantee I couldn't take Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes to the, to the shopping mall without stalling it because, and I probably couldn't get in it because it wasn't designed around me. That's and that's it, that trick. That's that trickle up, trickle down. Exactly. And, and that's the thing, you know, th thankfully Glenn at, at Big Bang Bikes uh, taught me that at a young age. And then when we spoke, uh, I think the first or second time was either when we met in person or, or, or one of our phone conversations after it was like, yeah, you could try and wear someone else's uh, dress shoes with the wooden sole, but it's not going <laughs> to feel very good. <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. But, but I think, you know, there's a couple more rabbit holes. We'll, we'll try and wrap it up and we'll have you come back again here to, to, to kind of have a, a more uh, deeper conversation about this. But the obsession in society of having the highest priced thing, like the cat, the, the coffee that was, the beans were eaten by the cap and then excremented. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, how do we break that? in our cycle of, of riding? Is it a matter of having a, going to a good bike fitter first before you buy a bike? Cause a lot of people, I mentioned that to them, like, Oh, come to me before you buy your next bike, because I want to help you pick it out. And they're like, Oh yeah, you're going to, which shop are you aligned with? I'm like, I'm, I'm right. not, I'm going to look at your movements and we're going to figure out which frames are set right for you. And they're like, Oh, I don't want to do that. You're going to make me spend money. I'm like you're, I'm going to make you spend money on a bike. You're never going to want to sell. Like, how do we break that cycle? What, what do the listeners need to understand about going to a good bike fitter beforehand to narrow down the models makes and even the years that might fit them best? Yeah, 100%. That's a, that's a service that I offer in clinic and it's a $500 service. It's a two-part service. So part one is basically you come in, we run through all the functional movement assessments I do with, with you know, uh, to assess, you know, where your level of function is. Then we talk about what type of riding you're going to do. And then, then we take you to my move cycle, which is an infinitely adjustable bicycle. I can, I can mimic any bicycle geometry on it. And I basically move you into a position where I feel you're optimally efficient. Um, maybe optimally might be a bit of a stretch. We get you within a sweet spot because I don't believe you can actually do a true bike fit if you're not on the bike the person's actually riding. I think that's really important. Um, but we put you into a, a sweet spot of where your optimal position is. Then I take that XY data from space and I run that against the known database of all the bikes out there. And we see how close we can get you so that you don't go and buy an expensive bike or any bike for that matter, because expensive is a relative term, right? And walk into my studio and go, Hey, I need a bike fit on that. And I'm like, yeah, you're not going to fit on that bike. I can tell you because then I end up performing a suboptimal, you know, service. It'd be like going to a surgeon, you know, and, and him going, yeah, we can't really do that surgery, but we're going to do one, which is close. <laughs> well, that, that's yeah. not a good thing. So the fit, it's called the fit first protocol and you'll see more and more high level 
rider positioning specialists, you know, AKA bike fitters are doing. And you spend that $500 up front and, and you'll actually end up with a better result of getting the right bike for you, um, which will fit optimally. And, and, you know, you, you won't be, you know, being, becoming an expert at how to sell things on eBay. Well, I want (laughs) to, sorry, I was listening and I already had the question written down. So that was bad. (laughs) Some of the other ones I left the the pauses in because I'm letting it sink. That is so important. And yet so many people spend primo uh, dinero on a bike and they feel obligated to make it fit at all cost. Correct. Now, I, I had my first uh, Conti professional that I work with. Um, she wanted a bike fit. My stuff was still in, in storage. I had moved abroad and I didn't have the, the, the tools that I needed. So I said, let's look around. So uh, it came out that there was a fitter who is new. They learned at, this is not a get a knock against the system. I'm just saying that when you have a hammer, everything is a nail. Correct. Fitter had learned retool. Mm. and I had dabbled just, with her. Let's just clarify. Retool is a piece of software. Yes. That, well, I was going to kind of do a, I, you're, you're direct to the point. I was going to do the, the dance around, the fancy one, the twirl and the dip. Right. Uh, I made a couple adjustments to her. I, I'm said, writing my latest novel on WordPerfect. <laughs> uh, I, I had made a couple adjustments. It's so probably like, going to be a shitty novel. <laughs> WordPerfect makes everything Sorry. better. Makes everything better. It's like Nutella. You can't screw that up. Right. Uh, that could be, that actually could be true. And one of the few in the world. And I said to her, you're going to need new stem. You're going to need new handlebars. Uh, they need to be wider uh, and possibly a new saddle. Well, she came back. She had a little bit of a hitch in her, in her pedal stroke. She had something going on in the hip. You mentioned balance and you mentioned looking at function uh, drives form. He crammed her up so bad. It took us Mm -hmm. three and a half months to undo two weeks of riding. Cause I said, I don't like it, but what do I know? Maybe he knows something I don't. And at the end of two weeks, I said, look, so-and-so absolutely not. We're taking everything back. I've got all the measurements. We're going to take you exactly opposite of where you were. How can the listeners avoid a situation like that? Because there's so many different tools out there. We mentioned the 290.90 app and the app store and self-fitting and retool. Yeah. And how do, how do they differentiate between a good fit or fitter? And I, and I include those who are learning. My first couple of fits were, were pretty bad. And I just said to them, come back as many times as you need to get this figured out. And if I can't do it, I'll send you to Glenn and pay for it. But most right. fitters won't. They're like, no, no, you're fine. How do, how do the listeners differentiate between a good fitter, a great fitter, and somebody that they should turn heel and jump on their bike and run away as, or ride away as fast as they can? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of bike fitters out there hide behind their technology. They have the, uh, these, and some of these, the technology this is amazing. But I, I just think everybody is a little bit unique. You know, I get two twins into the studio and I can guarantee you they will move differently. And therefore, that means that they will be on a different position on the bike. And that's not just cycling. That's just like everything, you know? It's just like, you know, if you had two people or, or a single person, if I, had, if I ran a, a movement assessment on somebody in the morning and then ran the movement assessment on them in the afternoon, their movement results will be different. Their level of functionality would be different. They'd be tighter. They'd be less hydrated, more hydrated. They'd be, 
you whatever you know there's all sorts of stuff which plays into that so i think you know you want to check in with your uh community and and you know be be a be wary of community as well because you know there's all sorts of stuff which is driven poorly um almost ask outside your community right <laughs> ask outside your peers about you know who's who's good um anybody who is pushing that their technology as their way of marketing their services i would probably avoid because anyone who's you know knows that they, they're going to talk about their technology is probably relies on their technology to tell them what to do and i think that's a, a very slippery slope um i would say one of the persons stand is people who stand behind their work like if if they're willing to give you a money back guarantee or or you know give you unlimited follow-ups um and that's a bit of a slippery slope from a business standpoint because everybody's like ah oh, you know a lot of the time i get people saying oh i've been riding my bike for like i came and saw you for a bike fit like eight months ago and and now my knee's hurting you know there must be something wrong with my bike fit i'm like no chances not chances are you have changed right and yeah the position may be off but it's not something which we did which your fit which drove it um you know if you've increased your mileage decreased your mileage got more flexible got less flexible got younger got older <laughs> all those things will affect your function i think a lot of people certainly look at bike fit as a one and done deal as well like oh i've had a bike fit you know i'm a size eight and a half that's not how it works bike fits are more like haircuts where you need to you know go back and reassess them they like going to the dentist every six months to get an assessment to see how you know have you changed is there something which needs to be adjusted if there is we can adjust it if it's not broke don't try and fix it but I think, you know, so many people try to go to the extreme position for their fit um, because that's what they see, you know. You've heard it over and over again. The guy at the coffee shop, oh, you can't have your stem turned up or you've got too many spaces under your stem or, you know, there's not enough bar drop on there. It's just such a, a, uh, a sport of intimidation <laughs> or um yeah maybe that's not the right word but you know it's it's got to work for you and one of my you know fun things i do is currently my my favorite ride bike is a 1984 steel frame uh with a chrome fork and and low section box wheels and i like riding past people on fully carbon deep dish carbon wheel bikes going wow your bike looks fast it's not about the you know it's not about the bike absolutely love it man i mean that's you've just checked about four different variables off. We want to make sure that you, you know, it's optimal for you. And, um, and a lot of the time, you know, I see this a lot and I see this certainly in the indoor cycling market when I'm dealing with these, you know, echelons and pelotons and I forms and stuff like that, that a lot of people riding who've come to that indoor cycling sport as a fitness mechanism, the movement pins aren't very, very familiar to them. And so it's very difficult to teach people. One of my colleagues said way better than me. It's like, I can, I can hand you a pen. I can hand you a fountain, a fountain, tip, you know, pen, a fountain tip pen, and, and you can write me a note. But if I teach you how to hold the pen and how to form the letters, 
that note will be more effortless and it'll look more beautiful. That's calligraphy. You just because you got a pen in the hand doesn't make you a, you know, <laughs> you can certainly be a novelist, you know, but it's about if you're taught how to hold the pen and how to form the letters, then you will do it in a slightly better way and a more efficient, a more beautiful, um, you know, there is the, and we see it in cycling. There's those guys on the bike who just look like, you know, it's the, the deceptive thing about cycling, you know, some guy going up a hill holding, you know, six and a half watts a kilo looks, looks the same as the guy, you know, riding his bike around the park on a Sunday morning. It's, it's, you know, the guys who do it, do it well and effortlessly, you know, beautifully make it look effortless. But there's a whole lot of skill and a whole lot of uh, form that has been taken into consideration in order to or function to get to that form. It's not just simply didn't, didn't happen overnight, right? Exactly, exactly. And 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 they had to you had to be taught it, and it needs to be refined, and it needs to be checked. Again, at the professional ranks, they've got people looking at this stuff all the time. They're always under a microscope. The guy who's you know like see people come in and they they I do an assessment on them and I look at their you know their, their foot mechanics and their movement mechanics and they're like well why do you think this is happening and I'm like I don't know this is the first time I've seen you if I if I had longitudinal data on you I might be able to give you a better decision that's why I have a lot of clients you know I had a client come in the other day and he's like you've been fitting me for like 14 years. And he's on numerous bikes and he goes, that's why I just always come back to you. Cause every time you do it, you like, you get it right. And you know me and that helps you get it right. <laughs> and that's a relationship where the dentist uh, example that you used is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that's it. You got to have those. I'll, I'll take a snapshot. And if you come back six months later and there's nothing to do, well, I'll just give you a cleaning. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll put you up on the bike and I'm like, dude, you look good. Let's have a look at this. Okay, continue. What have you been doing in your strength training? What have you been doing in your mobility work? We're just going to keep doing that. Maybe try this, you know, progress this. This this particular movement pattern looks a little bit, you know, a little bit off. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a constant. That's why I think it's really worthwhile. You don't have to, you know, it's like having a coach or doing strength training. You can, you can pay me just to do a single assessment and come in and just take a look at my movement patterns and Tell me where you think this is wrong. And then, you know, you make some recommendations like, you know, don't deadlift off the floor, lift off six inch boxes, use the high handles on the hex bar. You shouldn't be overhead pressing, you know, <laughs> or, or you shouldn't be forward flexing your, your, you know, your hip flex is a hypertonic, mm -hmm. um, whatever it is, you know, that's what you and I as movement professionals can bring to the table for people. Um, but I think people just take movement for granted until they can't move properly. That is exactly what happens. It's not a problem until it's a problem. And I'm, I'm not great with this. My wife's been on my back for five weeks or five years rather uh, to get my teeth cleaned. And I'm like, Oh, there's nothing, there's nothing, nothing. Well, all of a sudden it just happened. And of course during Corona, nobody's seeing people. So then it's another right. year, but that's a, I'm a great example of, of, when you don't understand or you don't care as much because like, yeah, it's not a problem. If you keep waiting, it really is a simple solution. Like you said, you come in for a cleaning, look at this, look at that, what's working, what's not working. Let's add this. Let's add that. Cool. Keep going. So yep. 
Greg, let's let's wrap up here for today because there's a lot of information. Here. I'm just looking back through the notes. So we've got about uh, uh, one, two, three, four and a half pages. So we definitely need to have you back again. But let's let's turn it to one final uh, fitter's wisdom. We'll call it. What would be the one piece of advice that that the listeners should hear about bike fitting or making the most out of their season here in July and August? Your saddle's too high. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> Guarantee it. Uh, I would say, yeah, 80, 85% plus, 85% of all the people I see, their saddle is too high. And, and the reason we think that is, is we're just so used to being standing upright in this extended hip, extended knee position, that when you get on a bicycle, it just feels more natural for you to extend your knee more and extend your hip more. But understanding that cycling is a hip dominant mechanic, we create our power out of the hip, out of the glutes, out of the hamstrings. And, and we don't use the quadriceps, you know, particularly rectus femoris, the big quadricep right down the front of your leg. We don't use that in cycling in the same way we use it in walking and running because we never go into what's described as terminal knee extension. And, and, I, you know, once you learn to just, and it's not, it might not be high by a lot, but I'll tell you over years, over 20 plus 22 years of bike fitting. Um, that's the one thing I see more than anything else. Your, your, your saddle's too high. And the second thing I see is your cleats are too far forward. That's a whole nother discussion where we definitely have to have. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, let, let's wrap up there for today. Unfortunately, I'm just, again, we will have to, as soon as we're done, we'll schedule, I think, another one for a couple of weeks from here. Uh, right. where, where can the folks find you here, uh, online or in person? Yeah, if people want to find me in person, I am based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Now things are starting to open up again, certainly in the U.S. We're having a, I normally have a lot of fly-in business where people come specifically to work with me in the clinic here. If you want to track me online, it is sanussports.com, S-A-N-U-S sports.com. That is uh, my website for all my sports science stuff. Um, We tend to be on the Facebooks and lasvegasbikefit.com. I'm a little bit all over the place. I suppose I should employ a branding specialist to put me all in one spot, but it's what happens when your career evolves over many, many years and uh you know into into many different things but uh yeah find me on the socials uh, as well we have a uh, santa sports has an instagram las vegas bike fit not as much stuff goes on that but um easiest way if you want to know a little bit more you can or have questions you can email me fit me at lasvegasbikefit.com Greg, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your morning here to sit down and talk with us. Uh, and really excited to, uh, to have you back here in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Menachem. It's always a pleasure. And I, I appreciate you having me on. And I hope your listeners all got something out of uh, our little ramble. That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HVT YouTube channel at 
HB Training. Until next time, remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.